pointed. I tell you to try a mile in my old shoes, then I laugh. No, you will not walk in their stiff nudity. You will stumble, hobble, stop, take them off and stare. Regard the throat, the vamp, the quarter, binding, platform, ribbon, then the shank shoring the cross-hatched sole, its tarnished diamond patterning. Consider the flat nub of the box. Now push your fingers in and feel its unyielding hardness. Imagine me, teenage and overweight, or underweight, and shivering in a shop on Chatsworth Road, thumbing the satin, holding the shoes at safe distance, wanting red or black, and not these shades of furless kitten, uncooked chicken. I thought this was built magic, but it was still pain on the wooden floor of the British Legion, with Sadie, Katrina, Helen, Claire. Releves and elevés to break us in, to flex and soften what would not bend. Sauté, piquet, arabesque. Some of us could lift ourselves. My ribbons came undone. I beat the soles against a wall, made them dirtier. I crunched the tang of salt and vinegar, my lips greasy on Gloomingate. Don't follow me home. Think instead of a thin wire, straight from the toes through the centre of the strong, slim hips, the tension held in ankles, core. A woman with broken bones, bunions, corns and blisters, bleeding, taller than she's ever been and tougher than a statue, talked like careful spider silk. Picture the trocks, men in green gold tutus, false eyelashes and bright pink lipstick, balancing their weight, landing it just right, taking the strain in their calves and thighs. See the wire as it runs through them all, like the invisible trick of Charles Didelot's flying machine, how the dancers seemed to elevate before they left the ground. I'll picture the body shape of Grace, Grace squeezed in a leotard, Grace doing plies at the bar, then make it uncontainable again. Let go and close the box for good this time. Know the cost, the pride, the strength of illusion. Hello and welcome back to Two Minute Stories. You've just heard from me, Helen Mort, and you're hearing from me again now, um, reading my piece, uh, Pointed, which is a poem, um, I think, about my experience of being uh, trying to be a ballet dancer, but in Chesterfield, the town where I grew up, which is somewhere that I'm always trying to write about in different ways. And I guess something that unifies all the two minute stories on the show today is a really strong sense of place. Is that fair, Chris? This theme of place running through everything that we're writing? Yes, I think it is. Hello, I'm Chris Nealon. Yeah, I think that seems like a key aspect of all the stories that that we're going to hear today. The way that place affects uh, the people within it and the way that they feel. We're going to hear from two very talented writers today. We've got Joe Stretch who is the author of three novels, the most recent of which, The Adult, was nominated for the Portico Prize and won the Somerset Maugham Award in 2012. Before that, he was the lead singer with the band Performance and his debut film, Wizard's Way, received several awards and was optioned for remake by Jack Black. 
and uh, he's a senior lecturer here at MMU. And we've got Adele Stripe, who's a poet and novelist from Tadcaster in North Yorkshire. She uh, She's published three collections of poetry, and in 2017, her debut novel, Black Teeth and a Brilliant Smile, based on the life and work of Bradford playwright Andrea Dunbar, won the Society of Authors Kay Blundell Trust Award for Fiction. So two uh, award-winning novelists on the show today. And yeah, place seems like a really key aspect of their writing and of your piece that we just heard. Yeah, and yours too. But I'm interested in what you think of this idea of of the kinds of places we write about, because I think of myself as quite a parochial writer, quite a Mm -hmm. local writer. So the places that I'm drawn to write about are usually the same. It's usually Sheffield and North East Derbyshire, this kind of Edgelands environment where I grew up, whereas I think of you as quite a global writer. I don't know if that's because you've lived a lot of different places or is that that, um, a way of characterising what you do or am I just generalising massively? No, I think think that's right. There's something about, uh, I've lived in Thailand and South Korea and I've, I've traveled around the world quite a lot in the kind of recent years of my life and that that shows up in my writing quite a lot uh, and and then also I moved to Manchester a couple of years ago a, a new city and an unfamiliar city and there's a there's a kind of nomadic feel I think something in my life that's that I'm um, kind of has an emotional impact and there's something about uh, displacement maybe both literal and emotional which seems to be cropping up in the way that I write this feeling of you know, appearing suddenly in an, in an unfamiliar place. When I was living in South Korea, I used to talk a lot about how I'd be walking down the street in some area of Seoul and I'd, I'd imagine going back to me five years ago mm-hmm. and if you just, you know, transported me in that five years ago, me into that moment, you know, yeah. you clicked your fingers and that me woke up on this street in Seoul, I think like, what on earth has... What direction has my life taken? Where am I and what am I doing here? And who, who is this version of me? It would have been completely inexplicable. I had that feeling so often living abroad and moving around from place to place. Um, and yeah, that's definitely something that I try to address in my writing, this feeling of, of how, how dreamlike life can be and how, you can, how there can be these alternative versions of you that just show up in these different places and, and the kind of mess of trying to amalgamate all of that into a you know, a sense of a, a unified sense of me. Does your writing have, do, do you have a sense of home though in your writing as well? Because for me, mm. I often find that the further I go from where I grew up, the more I want to write about it, which is weird. And then mm. when I live back there, I can't write about it as much in the same way. It's almost yeah. like I want to write about something when it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I do. I don't think I do have a strong sense of home. Um, I grew up in commuter belt Sussex mm-hmm. and something about it didn't seem very uh, exciting and full of detail that's worth plumbing. And then I lived in Brighton for eight years and that is something I tried to write about in my work and I continue trying to write about. But again, it's, I felt like a visitor coming into this place and, and learning to call it home. And I, don't, I think that's quite different to your work. There's, yeah. a, there's a real redolent sense of this is my place in the world and I'm going to show it to you honestly. Um, Would you agree with that? I think think it might just be that I've not got out enough. Um, (laughs) I've had the experience of um, growing up somewhere and then going away to different places, but then moving back again consciously. So at one point I was living back on the street that I'd grown up on as a child, just a bit further down. Oh wow! And I'm really interested in what makes people go back instead of moving on, Mm. um, which is a theme that Adele explores in her um, two-minute story, I think, this idea of do do you move, do you stay? 
And I almost think it's a dangerous kind of nostalgia that I have sometimes. But I do think as well that's what, in, what what's really interesting about places is that we get to know them through stories. Mm. And that's just as true if the place might seem quite ordinary. So, for example, Chesterfield, where I grew up, has this crooked church spire. And my defining memory of, of a chi- as a child is of growing up, hearing all these fantastical stories about how it got like that and how mm. it got twisted. Mm. And so storytelling was how I got to know a place. And I think sometimes if you go somewhere new, you get to encounter that place through the stories that people start telling you about it as well. Mm, that's true. Did you find that in Manchester? Um I don't know. I mean, Manchester, Manchester's got such a mythology about it. I've heard Manchester being described as a place that really likes to mythologise itself and invent mm-hmm. its own stories, you know. Um, I don't know. I find it quite an elusive place to to to, to get a grasp on. I think it, it seems like Manchester has evolved a lot in the past mm-hmm. 20, 20 years or so, you know, from this kind of semi-derelict, hungover, post-industrial, melancholic, mm-hmm. creative very creative, but very, you know, kind of beaten, downtrodden city into this modern media savvy kind of, you can see around Manchester, those, those, you know, these big glass buildings right next to like crumbling factories. And that's, that seems to be the Manchester that I've experienced, you Mm -hmm. know, that this, this, there's kind of new affluence and modernity rubbing shoulders with, you know, the old dog-eared fag end kind of Manchester, you know. Which is where we've like the, this, kind of mixed Manchester of different stories is where we are now in this amazing um, place called The Shed recording (laughs) stuff and it feels, it's nice you feel like you're both in the city but separated from it at the same time. Yeah, the glamorous shed building. So you're going to hear some stories now from different authors. You're going to hear a story from Joe called The Following Year uh, which is located in set in Stockport. Here's Joe. The Following Year In Stockport, where the Goit meets the Mersey, there's a row of pebble-dashed shops. Facing them, there's a Frankie and Benny's and the Gap Outlet. Behind them is an elevated section of the M60. The eastbound cars have just passed under Stockport Viaduct. The westbound cars are about to. The previous year, a woman stood on Platform 2, dressed in a black burqa, watching the southbound trains. Her handbag was brown, Mist hung over the viaduct that day, and beyond the mist was Manchester. One of the pebble-dashed shops is called Snug World Beds. Holding a white hard hat, wearing a grey suit, you send your daughter a picture of tree roots. Her buttock tattoos made sense of things, she told you. They satisfied, she said, life's absolute need for scars. Then she licked Passata from the screen of her phone, and opened a text from your ex-wife that concluded with so many X's they implied the deletion of a word, maybe even a name. You put on your hard hat and enter what was, until quite recently, a Jessup's. The woman drifted away from the commuters on platform two. It was spitting. She passed the bike rack. At the end of the platform, where it meets the viaduct, She was exposed to the wind and her burqa flapped about her. She climbed down onto the track. In a letter to a friend, Christopher Isherwood describes leaving a snowy Stockport station bound for Los Angeles. In long sight, leaflets for a literary festival lie strewn outside an estate agent's. 
If this city had an eating disorder, you know which it would be. The previous year, a motorbike accident, viewed from a distance, looked relaxing. Switching your phone to airplane mode the previous year briefly conjured the joy foreign holidays promise. The previous year, snug world beds closed down. A broken window offers a glimpse into the dusty space where the beds once were. She struggled to run, dressed like that, leaping from one concrete sleeper to another, avoiding the litter, the used toilet paper. She ran through the rain into the mist, and she sat down on the viaduct above the M60 and watched the cars. Commuters, giddied by it, gathered, and they photographed her. And what is falling exactly, except a search for something that might stop you? Everyone knows there's a Platform Zero at Stockport. Your ex-wife has seen your daughter's tattoos in the flesh. And there's a wheelless, peach-coloured bicycle in the alleyway by Snug World Beds. The pebble-dashed shop beside it has shut down also. Part of a sign advertising the world-famous Rampant Rabbit has broken away to reveal red bricks. Above the shattered doorway it says, Adults only. The shop is called Personal Lives. A banner strung from an upstairs window reads fireworks so you were you were just saying that the shops are real in stockport where the goit meets the mersey there is a row of pebble or there was a row of pebble dash shops mm. um and they've been recently be, been demolished mm. but when i wrote this or came across them there was a derelict um adult shop called personal lives mm. which was closed down um and it's just one of those things that you can't quite believe is true. But yeah, the idea of a, the idea of a, in this age or that age, it was two years ago, a closed down sex shop called Personal Lives just felt mm. like heaven, really. I love Stockport. I live in Stockport and I loved, and I wanted to research Personal Lives. I wanted to know how it's, how it's sort of adult shop competitors pictured it, thought about it. Mm-hmm. if they knew the guy I want you know in a fantasy and maybe I still will do this just wanted to know the person who run it assume it was a man maybe it wasn't mm-hmm. but that delving down into a into a place and it's and I go there still to the place now that where it's demolished personal lives and I don't know mm-hmm. why I'm drawn to that and I think it's because you know because I'm interested in my own personal life and what that means and what, what it means mm-hmm. in literature and, and what it means in, in, in this day and age to have a personal life. Yeah. Those words interest me and the idea that it was a derelict shop interested me. So is, is the building completely demolished now? It's completely gone, yeah. And it, so it was derelict when I found it and there was mm. that, the, as it's described in the story, there was the remnants of an advert. It was, it's all just real, really. Yeah. And now it's gone completely. But of course, somewhere, there's someone who used to go in there every day and you know, soul rampant rabbits and other things. And, and mm. it's not, the, it's not salacious to me. It's not salacious at all. I mean, this, this is all fairly ordinary stuff, isn't it? It's mm. just the fact that it was called personal lives. That, that, that's the thing that draws me more than. Well, fact. there's something kind of oddly vulnerable and, and tender <laughs> rather than the smuts that you might expect about that. There's a, a contrast there. That's quite interesting. Yeah, exactly. And I totally agree. And the fact that it's plural personal lives yeah. just seems so innocent. I mean, because it's not innocent, you know, I, I don't know what it is. I just was drawn to it. And Suggestive of stories as well. All the different, the stories of the people with their personal lives who frequented that shop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I, it's strange. That it, now I'm thinking about it, talking about it sort of on 
on being recorded. It seems weird to be talking about it, but it was. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I, I'm starting to. Wor- I'm starting to worry that I'm nostalgic for an age where of sex shops, and I'm really not. <laughs> and, and I'm really not. It, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't have any opinions on this. You, sound, you sound a bit defensive there, Joe. Yeah, like, well, I've just realised <laughs> that I'm sort of idealising a sex shop, <laughs> which I which I actually don't. I, it was. I don't know. It was just that. I don't know. Well, should we, should we move on quickly? Yeah, please. <laughs> I th- one of the one of the things that's, that's really <laughs> that's really interesting to me about the story is the uh, the contrasts throughout the story. It seems like there's a kind of there's a contrasting of the kind of uh, metaphysical with the mundane. So you have there's a really uh, impactful line: "Life's absolute need for scars." That's a very powerful and interesting line. And uh, I really like that you then follow that with the detail of Passata being licked off a phone screen. And that seems like a like a, a motif that you carry on throughout that kind of uh, mundane, everyday world of suburban fringe people and the kind of the depths and heights of humanity that they keep within them, perhaps in their personal lives. Um, what do you think about that? You know, when you're writing a piece or when I'm writing a piece like this, I'm I'm just sort of trying to condense and condense and condense and um mm. and earn and earn and earn. So if you have lines like, you know, they satisfied life's absolute need for scars, or there's another line where it's, you know, what is falling exactly but a search for something that might stop you. Yeah. You know, the the extent to which you have to earn those lines, you know. So you I just I don't know. I'm not really thinking in those terms. I'm I was thinking I just thinking in terms of the absolute concrete um as a way of earning the absolutely abstract Mm. and so it's just a kind of economy and all i'm thinking is you must you must work so hard in the concrete realm in order to look to to you know to earn those those maybe those more abstract lines yeah that line she licked passage from the screen of her phone yeah i'm not even sure that's possible no, it's a, it's a mysterious line yeah i I once spilt passata on my phone licked it off and thought imagine if i'd opened a text Imagine if I was someone's daughter and I'd opened a text from my ex-wife there. You know, I just yeah, thought, yeah, yeah. well, yeah, I once licked Passata from the screen of the phone. <laughs> it didn't open the text from anyone. What? Why did you Why did you start writing? Um, because I had time. I started writing because I was in a band and we were. I was living in um, Peter Gabriel's house. Really? Yeah. And uh, everyone was suffering from various mental illnesses and drug addictions except me. <laughs> so I just started writing because I had nothing else to do. Yeah. As I was in the middle of Wiltshire. I'd always I'd always loved the idea. Well, I started writing when I was a kid. I always loved the idea of writing, but that that's when I started writing earnestly and every day mm. because I just had time and that time and I don't have time anymore. Why were you living in Peter Gabriel's house? Because he runs happen? a studio in he, weirdly he runs a studio called Real World in near Wiltshire in Wiltshire near Wiltshire. In Wiltshire. Uh and it's we were, I was in a band and we were recording at his, at his studio and and uh, yeah, you just have nothing to do because the band was so dysfunctional, mm. or pretty dysfunctional at the time. And, and I was pretty functioning. I was reading. I was reading a lot of Nicholas Royal's books, mm. actually. And I'd, I'd met him and he was a novelist and he works at where I work at, at Manchester Met. Mm. And I didn't realize you could be a novelist. I just, it was only when meeting a novelist that I, the penny dropped that you could be a novelist. Mm. I thought, I don't know what I thought, but it was probably very naive, like all books were sort of you know you sort of you left behind your work died and then people decided whether they would be published subsequently yeah. i had no idea you could actually be a novelist mm. and then i met him and thought Fucking, oh I, great so you set about trying to become a novelist yeah well writing a novel yeah 
was your first novel your first novel? Was it the first one you wrote, or was there an abortive tech attempt that never saw the light? No, day? no. Well, I rewrote it, but it was yeah. My yeah. first novel was my first novel. No. My second wasn't my second. <laughs> Same way. My third wasn't my third. I don't think. So you've had a couple of attempts that never saw the light. Oh, loads, yeah. yeah. I went through a stage I could write a novel in about three weeks. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, now I haven't written one in seven years. Wow. But you're working on one now, I right? am, yeah. What's the... Well, are you happy to talk about the one that yeah. you're working on? Tell yeah. us about it. Um, no, I've just realised I'm unhappy to talk about it. Okay, we won't. The most interesting thing I'll say about, about, write, about writing the new novel is, is again, it's to do with process. And I'm obsessed mm -hmm. with, I'm writing just with pencils on paper. And I, I don't even think about the fact that I'm writing a novel. I think about the fact that I'm making small pencils out of big pencils. Mm -hmm. And that is a, such a pleasure. And I've got a, a little glass container on my... So, so you, write, you write by hand with pencils and you, until you wear them down to a nub. And then I put them in a glass container on my mantelpiece that I bought from Cheadle Home Sense, which is Manchester's mm. premier home sense. Of course. I've tried them all. And they're all they're all great actually, but Cheadle <laughs> is the best. And yeah, so I, all I'm seeing I want I want to fill that box with small so I've got about eighty thousand words of unbacked up text, all in notepads, all written in pencil. Dude. That's, you, you need to photograph that. No, because that, that's the other thing is I'm prepared to lose it. So that, oh, so wow. it's about process. Yeah, I, but I love it. And if I could show you a picture of <coughs> all these pencils in a glass case, you'd love it too. I would love it, yeah. And so the text is incidental. There's a cover of a, a Stuart Dybeck collection of short stories that's just a collection of pencils worn down to a nub. I love the cover. Yeah, it's heaven. They're, they're beautiful. So, uh, okay, last question, because I think we should probably wrap it up. What? How do you want your writing to feel now what are your what are your aims now i i think it's very simple you know and it but it will sound banal i think but i just there's a feeling that i'm searching for in 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 with voice which is just something on on the brink of tears i like um orhan pamuk if i pronounce his name correctly i like t texts that feel as though they are being recited on the brink of tears mm. And that's the only thing I'm interested in. Mm. <laughs> and I wish I was interested in other things. Mm. But when I, well, like when I read this, I feel like in my, in my own heart, I feel on the brink of tears. Mm. And when I, and even with my last novel, The Adult, which is sort of, you know, a sort of your basic coming of age novel, it was all an attempt to create a voice that was not crying. <laughs> you know, like that's not boot. But it's on the brink of tears. Yeah. And I think I'm obsessed with tears. I'm obsessed with crying. I cry a lot. <laughs> you're a modern yeah. man. And I and I love the notion of the brink of tears and the voice on the brink of tears when you're speaking to people and you can feel that they're on you know, this was happening last night to me actually, and someone was speaking to me and it was clear they were on the brink of tears. Mm. And there's something that, that just fascinates me because I think we are, we live on the brink of tears and, and Is that, there is there something about holding it back? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's it's about what what happens to the voice on the page in reality when, when we are on the brink of tears. And I and, and that that might seem God knows how that seems. Mm. I dread to think how that sounds, frankly. But in terms of text, in terms of writing, that's sort of what I'm into well, at the I think, moment. I think it creates a very powerful reading experience. There's that sense of um, being feeling overwhelmed and having to deal with it. That's quite a that's quite an apt way of describing life I yeah think, for most and people. i hope that doesn't sound indulgent i suspect it probably everything does when, you, when you're talking about that kind of thing but that's what i'm into that's yeah. what i mean that's what that's the sound i'm into yeah okay thank you very much joe we're going to hear from adele stripe now reading her piece big weekend 
You were the cock of the north. White jeans, shiny Versace belt. Back in 96, I remember the night of Brian's wake. 11 hours drinking lager, you and me and Chris, Brian's son. They lived next door to us, the family who always shouted and let their dog shit in our garden. Chris was pretty fucked up that night. Brian had hung himself from the stair rafters and it wasn't Chris's fault, but he thought it was. He thought it was all because of the court case. He drove his dad to it and you and him were friends from way back. You were bad children, always riding round the estate on stolen bikes, beating other kids up. You were boys whose mothers loved you too much. But the night of Brian's wake, we were back at Harold Hick Court in Simon's flat. We listened to What's the Story Morning Glory, all of us stinking from daytime drinking. And you and Chris were being boisterous, teasing each other. I went for a piss in the dirty bathroom. And when I came back, you and him were fighting on the carpet, the two of you smashing punches into each other. And as always, Chris took it too far and broke a bottle, stabbing the raw green glass into your hand, which sprayed red all over your white jeans. You were yelling at him, and the rest of the lads had to pin Chris down. He said he was going to fucking kill you. I pulled you towards the sink and pushed your messy hand under the tap, shouting for sellotape and binding your hand with it, cutting the pulsing blood off. Then a few of the lads got out small sealy bags and started smoking brown powder off tinfoil like an origami bird, all silvery and bright in the dark doomy flat. And you smoked some of it up through an empty biro. And I knew things were going a bit far, but I couldn't help watching and felt a bit sick from the musty fish smell. I watched you go quiet, eyes all watery, the very same look that lots of boys had on Sunday afternoons. So I laid on the sofa, pretending to sleep, and watched your lion face gouge on the sticky kitchen lino. Chris was sharing needles with my school friends, making tourniquets from their knockoff Gucci belts. And right there, at 5am, it struck me if I didn't pack my bags and leave for somewhere better, I too would be dragged into the same helpless hole that all of you had dug because the only difference between a rut and a grave is the depth. That was Adele Stripe reading Big Weekend. And I'm going to... Hi, Adele. I'm going to chat to you a bit about <laughs> your poem. Um, am I right in calling it a prose poem? Yes, I definitely think it's that. Jumping straight in with the technical questions. But why, do you, why did you... Um, why did you choose that form? Why did you want to write something on the border between poetry and prose? Um, I think at the time when I wrote it, which was 2012, 2011, around that time, I'd been studying poetry. So I'd, I'd done a degree and then I did my master's at Manchester. And I was feeling really uh, restricted by poetry in a sense that becoming really aware of form and the rules and I needed to break away from that. So this was the one of the first poems I wrote that was completely free of restriction. Um, and it was quite liberating to be able to do it. You can feel that in the text as well. I think you can feel that sense of, 
I'm going to tell this as it as it was and um the the sense in the narrative which is also about it seems to me as a reader it feels like a narrative about moving on as well is that fair do you think it definitely is um the last line on it at the only difference between a rut and a grave is the depth is actually a Haitian proverb that mm-hmm. I stole <laughs> so I, I like to take credit for that line that deeply philosophical ending line but it's not mine um it was stolen as all great lines often are but it feels totally earned I and mean, that's the thing about <laughs> Yeah. statements like that or about <laughs> truisms or pronouncements yeah. we've had this huge build-up to that <laughs> and the level of detail is, is astonishing and we're completely there all the way through there's loads of images that um really stuck in my head particularly the image of the hand under the tap yeah like the, the the um the starkness of somebody's um somebody's hand bleeding underwater and the fluidity of that and it strikes me as a really imagistic piece as well it, it which you don't always associate with prose poetry i think um, no I, I i think that was quite important to me to and i worked hard at it it took me a long time to get it right and it was i think jack spicer talked about this concept of things happen to writers for a reason Mm -hmm. because they have to be written about Mm -hmm. and you can't walk away from it you can't just put it in a box and forget about it It, those things happen and you're the person who has to process it almost it's your your role as the writer um so this was based on an event that happened and I remembered it really clearly. Sometimes things happen like that, don't they, in your life. You remember every detail um, with great clarity. And I just thought, I, I need to write this down. <laughs> so so that was big weekend. And um, I was pleased with how it came out. It's probably it's, my most successful poem it's really um, it's really interesting so we've had two pieces on the show today joe's and yours that both do really interesting things with time um so joe's piece is about sort of the the, the past the present and the future are sort of coexisting at the same time mm. and even the title of yours big weekend there's a sense in the poem that it's not just a weekend it's it's almost the whole of life and the sense that the narrator knows that they don't want to stay there and that yeah. they want to go somewhere else and i think yeah, I'm just interested in in talking to you a bit about how time functions in the in the poem. How you think time is in there? Uh, it, it, well, certainly in in the sense of of the date where it's set. Nine, it's sort of 1996, and I remember that being kind of a pivotal year mm-hmm. uh, in, in my life and in my friends' lives, and it was a point where everything went wrong in mm-hmm. the town where I grew up. And I thought, I've returned to it often thinking about what was it about that year? What happened? What happened before it? And what were the events that happened during that year? And why do I keep returning to it? And I don't understand why it's so important. Um, So my new novel is going to be set in that place at that time because I feel like I'm not finished with it. I'm really interested in what is, this is my last question, I promise. <laughs> um, what you said about music and music, this kind of storytelling you get in music yeah. being part of your family. So I think that is, that's a common experience. I remember I grew up with folk songs and like thought about the stories in folk songs. I think that's just as 
literary as books and I know that you you have worked with one of my favorite singer-songwriters um John Grant uh, whose work is very interestingly narrative I think as well definitely Um, and so this is um this is my my cheeky way of like (laughs) just wanting to talk to you about your work with John Grant right at the end because I think that's really interesting yeah um I created a new piece for John Grant for North Atlantic Flux, which was his festival at Hull City Mm -hmm. of Culture last year. And I met him in Iceland Mm -hmm. and I spent a day with him and um, he took me out for lunch and we went to his flat Mm -hmm. and he's got the most incredible record collection, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And he's a really, really lovely person and has got impeccable taste in music and so I spent all afternoon rifling through his vinyl um and then we I came over he came over for the festival and I wrote a poem which was based in Hesel Road in the 19th century about my great 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 grandmother and I wrote a lament and it was scored by an Icelandic composer Haldos Marison and it was performed with an ensemble live um, at Jubilee Church in front of an audience and Vicky Foster read it and her voice was perfect because it needed to be a whole woman reading it I, I couldn't talk to you about yeah. this at the time and like <laughs> poets in Hull of course yeah yeah, yeah. and like Afterwards, I mean, John was completely blown away and was like in tears afterwards. So it must have really moved him. And I was pleased that people were moved and and everybody was asking for a second performance. But of course, it was just the once it was recorded and it's on Vimeo, but it's not the same as actually being there and experiencing it. But there's something beautiful about that as well that links back to what you're saying about growing up with stories. It's that actually they're not really repeatable, not in the same way. You <laughs> yeah. have to be there. Be there. You've got to be yeah. there. It's an event as yeah. well. And um, we've lost that sometimes, I think, in the age of broadcast because people want to be able to take things away and play them again and again. There's something about reminding people that storytelling is it's, an event as well. It, yeah, and it's magical. Yeah. It's a magical experience. Um, I'm just so jealous as well that you got to go to John Grant's flat (laughs) (laughs) and look at his record collection how cool is that Um, thank you so much Adele it's been really good talking to you and thanks for reading Big Weekend stories of place in some ways um but one written in poetry and one written in prose and i think you 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 kind of inevitably um compare all the the stories and that one find similarities between them don't you it's that's mm. a natural human tendency that we want to find links <laughs> in everything we hear i don't know i think that they they as you mentioned in the interview they they cross over quite a lot as well there's mm. a, there's a there's a real sense and adele was talking about this too about how 
uh, how useful it can be for a prose writer to learn the skills of the poet yeah. and then apply that into their prose, you know, making every word count. The use of rhyme features mm-hmm. and cadence, as, that's so useful, especially if you're writing flash. Um, and I think you can see that in, in, in Joe's piece. There's a, there's a, there's a, a definite uh, prosody to, to his work in that story. Um, and then Adele's obviously that, that straddles the line, doesn't it, between poetry and prose? I think also Joe's work sort of um, relies on this tendency that we assume in poetry, um, which is that people, readers, will make connections between things. They mm. will assume that resonant details are linked in mm. some way. So you can collage things, you can juxtapose them, you can have these a series of bittersweet observations mm. and the reader then does the work of linking them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think do you think there's any crossover in the way that you three or northern writers deal with place <laughs> in those pieces? I mean Joe and Adele's pieces certainly both have quite a strong melancholic dealing with place, I think. Yeah, but then I don't know why this springs to mind, but I was just thinking about a novel like Graham Swift's Last Orders, which is set in the south of England. Mm. And I think of that as having that quality as well, that like sense of lost stories. And I wonder if it's just a writerly thing um, that there's an interest. Because be. when I'm writing about anywhere, I, I tend to look for those details, the things Joe was talking about, like the yeah. shop with the strangely ironic or memorable name and all yeah, those yeah, kinds yeah. of little things. Yeah. The redolent details. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And I find a lot of melancholy in your work about place as well yes that's true and generally (laughs) it's just a lot of melancholy around we're a cheery bunch (laughs) yeah it's true i mean you end up you end up being gravitated towards you know um writing about the difficulties of life generally i think when you sit down and write something it's rare to write it's rare to write a story or a poem about how lovely everything is yeah although when people manage it i'm always really impressed yeah me too (laughs) like um the writer that i really admire is um is uh, the writer Dortha Norse, who I've read in translation. Mm. And I think she's really good in some ways. Her stories are often uh, sad or ironic or Mm. bittersweet, but also they're sometimes about joy and about Mm. really beautiful things that happen every day. And I kind of love work like that too. And I wish I could write more of it myself. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Me too. It's, 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 it's hard. It's a real aim of mine, actually, to be able to write about the joyous things without turning to, to... The melancholic side of life. Maybe we should do a, a two-minute stories episode that's on the theme Happy. of joy. I think that would be dead interesting. <laughs> nice. That is a challenge. I'm not, I'm not sure I can do it. Um, okay, well, uh, I'm going to close the show out today, since you did it last time. Yeah. And uh, my story is called Little Things. Here it is. Little Things. There's a small glass jar with a small cork stopper sitting on the shelf by the bed. Inside, twenty-odd rolls of coloured paper, each cinched with a tiny gold ring. First time you met my parents, one would say, if the ring was removed and the paper unrolled. All the time I've spent missing you, another would say. The penmanship would be familiar. Loops, modest swoops. I'm on the plane to Copenhagen, the sun sitting on the clouds and laying its orange explosion over the cloud blanket so the world seems irradiated with brilliance, almost obscenely beautiful. In the airport train link, Danish men stand at a hot dog kiosk, eating big scarlet sausages with knives and forks, drinking from paper cups of beer. I take the bus toward the Orison Bridge, nighttime and rain and umlauts and Baltic. Somewhere I can hear the honks of giant geese. Hi, I say to her as she greets me at the apartment door 
and we hug and hug. Her penmanship is not familiar to me, and we share no rolls of paper, but we make love over the honking of geese. I move a mirror beside us so we can watch ourselves, mirror images shifting and reshifting. The large window is right behind the bed, looking out over the water, the Christmas lights, the turning torso, the waterside park, the mini-market, the neighbouring tower blocks, the road back to the airport, the small, dark, cold Fortside Canal. We hold each other in the night, as if from some malevolent force. We sink our bodies, two neatly curved spoons in a package. I cinch her little waist with my hands. Look, almost fits. Yes, she says, laugh smiling, and we listen for a while to the geese. <laughs>